This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, July 21st, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The Treasury Department's recent report on financial regulation details how many entities are subject to the regulations of four or even five federal agencies. Cato's Thea Brook Knight details the nightmare this poses for institutions just looking to engage in cost-effective compliance. Well, Treasury recently released this report that it has said is one of a series of four that it's going to put out looking at the U.S. financial system. Um, This report focuses on the banking system and credit unions. And it says a few things that we knew but that um, are kind of nice to see in print and nice to see the federal government recognizing. Um, So, for example, we've always known that the financial sector is heavily regulated and that unlike Uh, you know, our system has more overlapping regulators than most other financial systems in the world. So um, there's a really nice chart in this new report that came out that shows all of the different regulators in the financial sector and shows sort of the web of lines of oversight between these regulators and financial entities. And from this chart, we can see that an entity can be subject to up to five or six federal regulators. Um, And I'm not talking about regulations. I'm talking about regulators. And each of these regulators issues its own regulations. And these regulations sometimes conflict. Um, It can sometimes be difficult for an entity to understand how it can comply with all of the different regulations at the same time. Um, And one of the things the report is looking for is a way to simplify this process. So what does that mean for... Uh, relatively large firms and relatively small firms that would like to engage in some practice but uh, might have difficulty complying with four or five regulators with conflicting regulations? I mean, what that means right now is that products don't come to market because people are having too much trouble complying with all of these regulations and all of these different regulators. Um, In terms of what this report is likely to mean for those businesses going forward, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, One of the things about uh, recent, especially financial regulation is that – or legislation, I should say – is that Congress has taken a kind of skeletal approach to legislation. And by that, I mean – they write these very broad laws and then leave it to the regulators to fill in the gaps. And that works very well for the members of Congress because they can say, oh, look, you know, voters, I did this thing for you. And if it goes well, they can take the credit. And if it goes poorly, they can blame the regulators. Um, What this does, however, is it puts a lot of power in the hands of the regulators. And that means that a lot of power is going to the president. So even if at certain times we might like what the president happens to do, and in this case, you know, it looks like President Trump is going to – has been very deregulatory in his tone in talking about the financial sector, that means that there's just too much power in the hands of one person. We don't want the entire regulatory structure to change from one administration to another. Um, So in this report that Treasury put out, They have a number of different recommendations, and it's actually surprising how few of them require congressional action. Now, some of them do. 
Um, you know, if we're going to decrease the number of financial regulators, for example, um, one idea that has floated for a long time is combining the Securities and Exchange Commission with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. These are two areas of the markets that in a lot of other countries have a single regulator, and we have two for sort of, you know, commodities tend to be based in uh, Chicago, uh, securities tend to be based in New York, so we have these separate regulators. Um, that would require congressional action, but there's a lot that the agencies themselves can do without Congress having to act. Such as looking at the regulations that they've got and saying, where are we in conflict for certain areas of endeavor? That would be a great place to start. That's one of the things that this report recommends is um, for regulators to take that uh, into consideration. Another important thing that this report does is that it recommends that all of the financial regulators used cost-benefit analysis when uh, considering a new regulation. There was an executive order from uh, the 1990s that President Clinton issued that directed all of the agencies to use cost-benefit analysis when considering a major new regulation. The independent agencies were exempted from that. And the independent agencies include most of the federal regu the financial regulators. Something that anything that ends in commission, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's a good place to start. Um, and also the CFPB. Um, so one thing this report recommends is requiring all of these agencies to use cost-benefit analysis. Um, now, you know, in some ways that just makes sense. If you're going to issue a regulation, you can, should consider what the downsides of the regulation are going to be before you impose it on people. Um, some people argue, you know, it's hard to really estimate what the cost is going to be, and in some ways it's just sort of a paper-pushing exercise. I would say that it is worth at least thinking through the problem. Now, whether this report can actually impose that requirement on some of these independent agencies is an open question. Um, it can be, you know, the agencies are independent. Um, they, their heads do not serve at the, pres at the pleasure of the president. They are removable only for cause. And um, so there's some question of whether the president can say you will now uh, use this cost-benefit analysis. This is a consistent problem in all areas where the federal government has uh, regulatory authority. I spoke with Susan Dudley, who was head of OIRA during the uh, Bush administration, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and uh, a whole lot. Maybe this is less true in financial regulation than it is in in other areas. But some things don't boil down to dollars. Some regulatory impacts don't boil down to something that you can put a dollar sign on. And that's a challenge. And as I said, you know, in some ways. This is a formality um, where the agency that has to undergo this cost-benefit analysis for its regulations does this sort of performance and comes up with a piece of paper. Um, I think that there's some benefit to it just in that it does require the agency to think through this. Um, and it requires at least a recognition that regulations are not costless. As part of a broader deregulatory push, uh, the House has passed the Choice Act. And the Senate is going to do what? Well, that's a good question. So the Choice Act um, seeks to repeal or reform a lot of parts of Dodd-Frank. Um, I have not heard from anybody who thinks that the entire act is going to get passed by the Senate. Um, that seems really unlikely. 
What is more likely is that at some point the Senate will pick up the issue of financial reform. Um, this will most likely be in the fall. The Senate is still dealing with things like uh, nominations from the administration and um, other issues like that. So what I foresee happening over the next few months is the discussion sort of forming. So you know, people in the Senate are going to be starting to think about what they might want to do, what kinds of reforms are feasible. Um, both from a, you know, what their constituents might be open to and what they might be able to get the votes on. And so I think that there's going to be an ongoing conversation in Washington about what those reforms should look like. I see the the Treasury report as being a big part of that conversation. Um, One thing that seems to pop up over and over again is relief for small banks. This is something that was floating even before the election when most people thought that we would be having a a Democrat in the White House. Um, And so reform would be more difficult. Nobody has ever seriously argued that the small community banks caused the financial crisis. Um, They were mostly victims of it. And they have continued to suffer. Um, Now, some of the reasons that we still have trouble in this sector is not necessarily due to the crisis there were or to regulation. Um, There were ongoing trends in this sector with consolidation, more big banks, fewer small banks. Um, But Dodd-Frank has really been a heavy burden on them. We've seen a lot fewer new banks than we would expect um, absent this this new legislation. And the reason that small banks are so important is that they do most of the small business lending. And small business lending is where we get most of our jobs. And so the health of the communities outside of the big cities, outside of our big coastal hubs, really depends on these small businesses and the, the banks that, that supply the capital for them. Um, this might be an easier sell in Congress than, um, you know, broader reform. I, I think that you could get a, a good coalition to support relief for these small banks. So what is that? what would that look like then for uh, if you wanted to draw a line around small banks and say, you are, your, you know, market cap is this, as a general matter, what does that look? Is it is it going to be based on the size of the bank, this the the whole, the deposit, the deposits that the bank holds, the loans that they hold, and say, well, you're you are a small bank, and therefore you wouldn't be subject to this regulatory regime. Yeah, usually there are dollar limits where a bank over a certain size is subject to certain types of. I mean, there are some carve outs already in Dodd Frank. Um, although most of them don't go far enough. So it would be expanding those exemptions for the the banks that fall under a certain dollar limit. But would that then put, would that blunt, in your view, the push to repeal Dodd-Frank? That's an interesting question. I think that it could. Um, I think that, unfortunately, there is still this animosity toward the big banks. Um, The narrative has been so skewed and, you know, in my mind, incorrect, saying that the the cause of this crisis was the big banks and big bank greed. And as long as that narrative persists, it's very difficult to repeal legislation that people see sticking it to the big banks, um, even if what they're missing is that by sticking it to the big banks, they are sticking it to themselves um, by stifling the economy. One of the last conversations I had with Mark Calabria before he uh, abandoned us uh, here at the Cato Institute uh, was essentially about how, at least with respect to campaign rhetoric and uh, some of the priorities of presidential candidates, including Donald Trump, 
was that Bernie Sanders was really driving that discussion about what to do uh, with the financial sector. Of course, Donald Trump got big applause lines. It was a big applause line whenever he said, we got to get rid of Dodd-Frank in, in various communities around the United States. But to what extent is Bernie Sanders, who's still in the Senate, still driving the, the debate around uh, financial reform? I think that financial reform is still a, a third rail politically. It's very difficult um, for politicians to talk about loosening regulations um, on Wall Street. And you know, I think that a lot of the populist rhetoric we saw in the recent campaign is it demonstrates this, that people have had we've had a very slow recovery, um, and the recovery has been very lopsided. There have been certain parts of the country that have had, great growth, and but there are a lot of parts of the country that haven't seen any real recovery at all. And I think that unfortunately, what people seem to understand is this idea that it, it is these financial institutions that caused it. Now, I, you know, that, you know, the, the cause of the financial crisis is its own story. Um, I just want to say that, you know, a lot of government policies created the perfect storm that resulted in the financial crisis. Um, but there's been a really effective uh, messaging mechanism getting people to, to blame it all on Wall Street. And I, I think that still exists. I think that it's not maybe as, um, as close to the fore as it has been in the past. Um, just, you know, we're many years from the crisis now. Um, but I do think that it is very difficult politically to put through uh, changes to financial regulation. However, um, you know, Donald Trump won the presidency and was very clear that he wanted to repeal Dodd-Frank. Um, and, you know, he has followed through with a lot of, you know, he can't actually repeal Dodd-Frank as president. But, you know, this um, report by Treasury is very critical of Dodd-Frank and puts forward a lot of recommendations that would, you know, repeal or soften parts of it. And, and the report is not perfect. There are some areas that, um, you know, are a little bit weak in my mind in terms of the the um, arguments for repeal. Um, you know, and we did see the Choice Act pass in the House. Now, it passed pretty much on party line votes. Um, and the Senate is not likely to be as willing um, to take such a strong stand, even the Republicans, um, because they tend to have bigger, more diverse constituencies. But, you know, I think that we still, the elected officials still have to deal with this anger. Thea Brooke-Knight is Associate Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 